Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on page 36. We're almost done with the Pesuki de Zimra. We're almost done with the verses of praise. We've gone through the last five chapters of Tehillim. We've gone through the beginning of, uh, through a portion of Chronicles exp explaining King David's uh, fundraise celebration, fundraising celebration, how he would celebrate when he fundraised for the Beit HaMikdash, how that's relevant to praising God. When we donate our heart and soul to praising God, which we're going to do that fully when the Beit HaMikdash comes. We conclude the verses of praise with the song by the sea, the Shirat Hayam. The Jews left Egypt. Were, um, so what happened was they, they escaped, right? They left. There was the plague of the firstborn. They were allowed to leave. And Pharaoh notices that they're going in this roundabout way. And he says, wait a minute, they seem to be perplexed. They seem to be confused. This is a perfect opportunity to get to them. And he starts chasing them, and they're cornered by the edge of the sea. And now they don't know what to do. And right there, we had the four groups by the sea. Remember that story? One group wanted to pray. One group wanted to fight back. One group wanted to um, and commit suicide and just give up. One wanted to surrender. Let's just go back to Egypt and be slaves. And Moses says, what do we do? God, what do we do? And God says, none of the above. Just go forth. Keep going. It's going to be good. And everybody's like, well, I don't God, did you notice that big body of water, that big puddle <laughs> called the sea? We can't get through. So there was one brave person who took God literally. His name was Nachshon, Nachshon ben Aminadav. And Nachshon takes the plunge, expecting this miracle to happen. He goes in and nothing happens. <laughs> so he goes a little bit deeper and nothing happens. And it's like, uh, so he goes up until his nose and finally the sea splits. The Jews escaped Egypt. Right, The Egyptians were washed by the sea. The Jews made it out. And their reaction to that was the Az Yashir, which is the bottom paragraph, quite lengthy, page 36 and 37, most of 37, where they all in unison sang to God. Let's read the brief couple of sentences that lead up to that, which is the middle of page 36. We're going to jump around out of order here for a little bit. Middle of page 36. In the Hebrew, it says, Vayosha, in the English, and the Lord delivered Israel. God delivered Israel on that day from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel beheld the mighty hand which the Lord wielded against the Egyptians. Fancy lingo here. And the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in Moses, his servant. Okay, why did God save the Jewish people? Why did God deliver the Jewish people at this point? What did we do to deserve this? The answer is nothing. God didn't choose us because of things. It's a real deep, intimate relationship. He chose us because of just unconditionally who we are, not what we've done. In fact, a big portion of us were idolatrous. The um, David, you're going to hear this soon in our class and about our other class, our JLI class, in about an hour from now. The Talmud says that one of the most that, that splitting the sea was 
quote unquote difficult for God. Just kind of a funny statement. How could that be difficult for God? He, he created the sea. Splitting it is difficult. <laughs> when it's unnatural, well, God created that nature. How could that be difficult? So one explanation based on the Zohar is that God was employing discipline, disciplining the Egyptians. And then wait a minute. Some of these Jews are deserving of discipline as well. Yet God decided to hold that back. He held back that discipline against the Jews and aroused and, and, and employed compassion for the Jewish people, even the ones that may have been deserving of such discipline at that point. So why then did he save the Jewish people? He made a covenant with Abraham. Take a look at the top of page 36. All the way on the top. And this is what we read um, pre-Song by the Sea. From the book of Nehemiah, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham, Abram, Avram, even before he added his name, right? Brought him out of our costume and gave him the name Avraham. And you found his heart faithful before you. God didn't choose Abraham because he was faithful. He chose Abraham. And Abraham was also faithful. You know what that means in English? We are not the choosing of people. We are the chosen people. Right? We were chosen by God, and we are faithful to that. God doesn't choose, choose us because we believe. He chose us. And there's this unconditional relationship that we have. And that's why the next paragraph says, and you made a covenant with him to give him the land. The land of the, can can I, the, land of the seven nations, as it enumerates here. And as part of that, yes, we went into Egypt, and yes, we really went through uh, we went through the ringer. But God is going to be with us unconditionally. When God first appeared to Moses, when the Jews were in Egypt in distress, God appears to Moses by the burning bush. And the Torah makes a point to point to, to to tell us that it was a thorn bush. Commentaries wonder why that's relevant. Rashi points out that thorn bushes are uncomfortable. And God was trying to insinuate to Moshe, to Moses, I'm with the Jews even in their discomfort. Nobody wants to sit on a thorn bush, right? <laughs> I'm with the Jews even amongst their, their, their discomfort. God is with us. He's with us no matter what, because the relationship is unconditional. He chose Abraham and Abraham was faithful. It wasn't that he chose Abraham because he was faithful. What if God chose Abraham because he was faithful? And what happens when Abraham is no longer faithful? What happens when there's a golden calf situation? Are we no longer his people? <laughs> right? So God chose us unconditionally. There's nothing we can do to get out of this relationship. We're stuck. We're stuck. Where was I going with this? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. What, what? So, so the, you know what we call this, by the way. This is what real faith is. This is called educated faith. I was speaking to somebody today. He reached out to me. He was going through a very difficult time. Apparently, had a bit of a traumatic 
childhood. And he wanted some advice. And I, I said, have you ever, or have you ever um, turned to your faith as a Jew as a source of comfort, as a source of strength and resilience? And so he said, so you mean to say, like, after all I've gone through, just, just have faith? I said, no, that's blind faith. <laughs> That's blind faith. If it's you're going through this rough time and you know, just have faith that it's that, that you're okay, that God is but that that's blind faith. Have educated faith. Don't just believe it's good. Know why it's good. Learn about your relationship with God. At this point, we have educated faith. We don't just believe that God is incredibly great. We've been exploring this how great god is yet how relevant god is we've been exploring this for the past uh, several pages and we're at a point where we say god is not only great but this great god is relevant to existence this rel this relevant god who is great chose us to have this relationship with us and it's going to save us and it's going to help us unconditionally and the reaction to that, the emotional reaction to that, take a look on the bottom of 36, the third paragraph of the page, or whatever, the last paragraph of the page. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. The reaction to faith is we sing, we dance, we celebrate, we have joy. Take a look at the paragraph right before. They believed in the Lord and in Moses, his servant. They had this educated faith in God and in Moshe, which, which the, the Midrash points out. It says they believed in God and Moshe as if these two faiths are one and the same. Inseparable. We believed in God. We believed in God's messengers. And the reaction to that was, we sing. That's what the Maharal, this is how the Maharal explains it. Rabbi Yudalau of Prague from the uh, 15th, 15th or 16th century. The way he explains is that the Az Yashir, the singing that we did, was a reaction to the faith that we had. And by the way, Rashi points this out as well. It's, it's a little bit more cryptic in Rashi. But when it says Az Yashir, then they sing. What does Rashi say? Rashi has a question. What does it mean they sang? <laughs> How did they sing? Did they practice this before? Were they prepared for this? Imagine you come to shul and there's this new song that the rabbi starts singing. You're going to be quiet because you don't know you don't know it, right? <laughs> How did they all know the song? <laughs> there was no rehearsal. This was, Rashi says that that was part of the miracle. There was this emotional reaction of joy and they just miraculously in unison all started singing together. There was no um, rehearsal to this. It was an emotion. The emotional reaction of the experience that they that just took place was that of joy. This song celebrates faith. That's essentially what the Az Yashir is. It's not just celebrating deliverance. That's what it is on a very textual, literal level. God saved us. We're happy. Yay. 
But what it's celebrating is not that he saved us. What it's celebrating is why he saved us. And the answer is not because of any, not for any reason that we may deserve. Like that's true love. It's like, why do you love your child? Right? That's one question you don't want to come up with answers for. You don't have a reason why you love your child. Unless they're teenagers, then you have to figure out why. You have to find reasons. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> that's what I hear from a lot of, I don't have teens, but obviously, but I hear from a lot of parents. It's just, I was said it once, is it, Rabbi, I, I, could, I have to come up with reasons actually. But, um, but no, but if we're if we're if we're really digging deep, there's no real reason why we love our children. What we're celebrating here is not that God delivered us, but it's why He delivered us. There's this unconditional love. He chose us unconditionally. Going speaking is it, uh, tying this into educated faith. Take a look on page. Uh, uh, sorry, on on that paragraph that we're up to. I'm going to reference the Hebrew because it's easier. Um, for what I want to show you right now. Take a look at line number three. In the Hebrew, the last word of the line, it says zeh. You see it? Okay. I'm going to just read this phrase and translate it, and you're going to see something fascinating here. This uh, you're, you're going to see how the theme of Az Yashir, based on this verse, is actually educated faith, not blind faith. Blind faith is not sustainable. Ze Eli Vanvehu. This is my God, and I adorn him. What what's the English? This is I'll glorify him. Okay. Eloke Avi, the God of my father, Va'aremenhu, and I exalt him. This is my God, and I adorn him, the God of my father, and I exalt him. So there's a teaching from the Shalah Hakadosh. The Shalah is an acronym for the Shnei Luchot Habrit, which is a philosophical and Kabbalistic work by Rabbi Yeshayahu Horowitz of the, uh, I think also 1500s. And here's what he explains. If it's my God, I made him personal, my faith is educated, I'll adorn him. I'll praise him. I'll glorify him. But if it's Elokei Avi, if it's the God of my father, if my faith is just because I was told to believe, it's not an educated faith, then I exalt him. He's exalted. He's abstract. He's not relevant. And what we're celebrating is two things. What we're singing with the Az Yashir is that, number one, God... Number one, it's why God delivered us, not that he delivered us. And why he delivered us when we understand that what we feel is that he's relevant. He's relevant to the world. In general, this is kind of the purpose of, you know, speaking of the 19th of Kislev, which is coming up soon, where we celebrate the publication of the Tanya. We celebrate the birth of the Hasidic movement essentially, of Chabad Hasidic movement. The purpose of Hasidic teaching is to take this abstract God and realize, no, he's actually right here. Right here all along. It's not a, It's obviously not something that Hasidic teaching invented, but it's ideas that have been re-emphasized, that have been kind of un, not focused on throughout the generations. 
on a uh, Yudtes Kislev Fabrengen, 19th of Kislev, several years after the original event when the Alter Rebbe was liberated. He had a chassid named Rabbi Isaac Hamler. Isaac from Hamil. He was uh, a passionate chassid, a devout chassid, incredible scholar. And this was a spirited Fabreng and chassidim together, singing and sharing stories and, and words of inspiration, a very warm environment. And he gets up and he says he wants to say Al-Chaim and he says, you know who was redeemed on the 19th of Kislev? Who was in captive up until this point? He says, it wasn't the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, Rabbi Shneir Zaman. It wasn't him. So what do you mean? He was in prison. No, no. He was in prison geographically. <laughs> but in spirit, does it really make a difference to him? Is, is, does, it, does it lower his ability to impact the world? <laughs> Somebody of that caliber? So who was really redeemed on the 19th of Kislev? He says, God. Because post pre-19th of Kislev, God was seen as this exalted being. The God of my fathers, whom I exalt. He's up there in the heavens somewhere. Post-19th of Kislev, with the publication of the Tanya, we see that God is actually right here. He's everywhere. He's right here with us. He's my God, so I can glorify him, I can adorn him. It's like somebody asked the Katzker Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem of Katzk, where's God? And he said, wherever you allow him to be. <laughs> Don't push him up in heaven. He's, he wants to be here with us. And when we internalize that, when we appreciate that, the reaction to that is we sing. We have joy. In, in, in Hasidic tradition, or in practice, singing is not something that's necessarily scheduled. <laughs> You know, you come to a Fabrengen and it's not like, okay, these are the lists of songs we're going to be singing. <laughs> it doesn't, it's a, it's a, it's more as Rashi describes by the Azashir, Nasali Bolashir. It's an emotional reaction to, to just sing. Hasidic teaching takes the story of the splitting of the Red Sea to a whole new level. If you just read the text, God saved us. The deeper explanation based on the Maharal, like we said, we're celebrating not just that he saved us, we're, we're celebrating why he saved us. But Hasidic teaching explains that there's actually a whole Kabbalistic backstory that's going on. Everything that happens in the world is a parallel of, of a or a reaction to a, to a deeper reality that we're not necessarily aware of. That's what Kabbalah is. Kabbalah is like the back end, right? You're on a website. You see the front end. You fill out a form, whatever it is, right? But then there's the back end. And then within the back end, there's the coding behind it. And then within the coding behind it, there's the, there's, there's a, right? There's a whole, there's a lot going on in life in general. More than what we see. The back end story of the splitting of the, of the sea. Kabbalah talks about two worlds. What's called the hidden world and what's called the revealed world. In Hebrew, the Almad is Kasia, the world that's hidden, and the Almad is Kasia, the world that's revealed. 
And what we mean by world, we don't mean geographical locations. We mean paradigms. There's two different paradigms of existence or perspectives. So I'll give you an analogy to, to or not an analogy, but an, an imagery here to illustrate this idea. If your soul were to travel to heaven and not be bound by the body, what it would see is that God, the, the, the reality that we believe in, God is one, it wouldn't be faith, that would be just obvious. Taken for granted, of course God is one. Of course God is the only one. Of course God is the only existence. Literally the only existence. And the fact that there is what seems to be independence, an independent world that seems to hide God, the fact that God allows that, even though it's all a part of him, it's like the rays of the sun, it's all a part of him, that's a big nuance. That's a, Rick, really? Whoa. But then our body's perspective and our soul's perspective while constrained by the body is the exact opposite. We take it for granted that we feel independent from God, that we're our own thing. That's the revealed world. We're above the water, right? And and we're um and the fact that there's this belief that there is one God and he's the reality, that's a nuance. Like, really? <laughs> well, I have to learn more about that if I'm gonna actually <laughs> understand this and take right, believe in that this is what's the difference between the the the, the revealed world in the hidden world and the hidden world is the soul reality it's like you're in water you're absorbed in your you're absorbed in the reality with which you believe which is god like a fish in water a fish depend a fish senses its dependence on water dry land that's the reveal world. And these two worlds are different worlds. They're different paradigms of existence. Comes the Jewish people at, Mount, uh, at, at the splitting of the sea. And this world split for them. The world that's totally hidden. Where you understand that God is the only true existence. Absorbed in its in, in that reality, right? Represented by the water, created space for them to exist. That's the splitting of the sea. We as Jewish people have space, have this space of dry land where we can exist in our own bodies as regular, normal human being with human drives, yet still be absorbed in that reality that there's actually a deeper truth than what meets the eye. That's the splitting of the sea. That's how Kabbalah explains it. An incredible revelation, but again, usually revelation, usually revelation doesn't, uh, usually revelation changes you or negates you. In other words, with this revelation, you can't be you. Right? Like at Mount Sinai, where they had this revelation and the body left the soul, right? They had to, and they temporarily died. They had to have been revived. This was a type of revelation that was, although otherworldly, it didn't negate their own existence. That's how deep that revelation was. You know when we're going to experience this? You guessed it. <laughs> and, and that's actually, it's it's explicit at the end of the prayer. That's what it says. 
Take a look at the end of the prayer. Take a look on page 37. Give me a second. Let me just find it. Is, is it the part about the Mount of Asav? So, yeah, that's part of it, but a little bit before that. Um, it's about a third, it's about the bottom third of the page. It starts with, you will bring them. You see it? On 37. About 15 lines up from the bottom. You will bring them and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. This is what we're, this is what we're um, praying for post song of the sea because this is the experience we just had we're going to get to that place the place which you O lord have made your abode the sanctuary which your hands O lord have established the lord will reign forever and ever god you're going to take us to this reality we had this reality while we went into the sea and celebrated it and we pray for the day that god you're going to actually take us there and we're going to experience this not just as a as a momentary momentary experience but it's going to become Part of life, right? The Lord will reign forever and ever. It's going to be something that's eternal. The sovereignty of the Lord is established forever and for all eternity. Okay, I think that's all I got. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>